Well, welcome to Thursday nights here at Calvary Chapel South Bay, and if you're joining us, uh, we're almost midway through our series here in the book of 1 Corinthians, walking right side up in an upside down world. And perhaps no subject matter is that more important in our world than the issue of marriage and its consequent issue, which is all too frequent in our world, that of divorce. And so tonight we're going to tackle a tough subject. If you're here tonight and you're not married but you want to be married, this message is for you. Because God looks at marriage as a permanent institution. God never intended for marriage to be temporary. God never intended for marriage to be something that we enter into lightly or ill-advisedly. He did not mean it to be selfish, and we've covered much of that in the previous verses here in chapters 6 and 7. But as we draw to this next passage of Scripture, and we'll pick up in verse 10, God gives us some commands, and so we have God's design for marriage not is a way that you can look at it. And Paul now deals with the issue of divorce, deals with the issue of the sanctity of marriage, and he deals with the issues that we face in our country Because we live in a day and time when more than 50% of all marriages end in divorce. God's word is extremely clear on the issue of divorce. And I want to do justice to this passage tonight. And I do not want anyone who's here to walk in condemnation. I do not want you to walk without hope. I do not want you to leave here believing that you've committed the unpardonable sin Uh, If you're here tonight and you are divorced and maybe you've remarried and maybe you were remarried at a time when perhaps scripture has a problem with the way you remarried, let me be very clear from the onset, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Divorce by itself will not keep you out of heaven. But divorce is a very serious thing, and it has massive consequences in your life. It is second only in the pain that it causes to that of death, according to the American Psychiatric Association. It is a very problematic area, even in the lives of Christians, because Christians' divorce rates are zero different than people who do not know the Lord. And that is a tragedy. And so tonight, we're going to pick up in verse 11. Before we do, I want to spend some time speaking to you from a non-Christian perspective, but with regard to what we know about the fruit of divorce before we dig into the scriptures tonight. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the beauty of your word, for the majesty of it, for the way that it corrects and massages our thinking. The Lord causes us to know truth. And so we pray that for those tonight that have come in and perhaps they hold an unbiblical view of what divorce is, that you would change that heart. Maybe someone tonight is even contemplating divorce. God, in Jesus' name, would you turn them back from the edge of that cliff? God, I pray that you would strengthen our marriages, cause us to know what is your good and your perfect will for each of us within marriage, help our marriages to flourish and grow. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to quote from a number of studies tonight, and rather than take the time to mention each one of them individually as I quote, I I have put together a whole plethora of things that I want to share with you. Uh, They come from the Journal of Youth Culture, Divorce and Remarriage, which is a study that was done by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, which is important because these are are non-Christian entities. These are not prejudiced in any way, shape, or form towards believers or not believers. This is just the facts as they are known to us in our country. Josh McDowell's research department Uh, employs both Christians and non-Christians in their research. 
American Academy of Pediatrics, National Survey on Family Growth. These are reliable. You can search them for yourselves. Each one of them is available to you on the Internet. You could simply go and type in any of these titles, and you're going to come up with the studies. But I've condensed them for the purpose of us understanding that there are a whole lot of things that have changed in our world, and they've changed because of the danger of divorce. And I, and I want to share some of those things with you because very often people say to me who are in the throes of divorce or maybe they're contemplating divorce, well, it's the best thing for my family. Or it's the best thing for the children. Or it's the best thing for my mental state. Or it's the best I can do. I hear these things frequently and often and I'm here to tell you that not only are those things not true, they are the lie from the enemy. The enemy wants you to believe there is no hope for restoration. The enemy wants you to believe that there's no way your marriage can be reconciled. The enemy wants you to believe that no matter how hard you try, it can't be fixed. And so the enemy feeds thoughts into the minds of even believers to make them think that there is no hope And I'm here to tell you that there is hope and there's reason to resist the temptation to be divorced. So let me share a few things with you. The first change that we've seen in our nation since really the onset of what we call no-fault divorce. In other words, two people go to court and for reasons uh, that they alone decide, uh, they're able to get a divorce and no one is found at fault It used to be you had to have just cause in order to enter into divorce court. In other words, there was adultery. Our our laws were geared towards there actually being something that was on the lines of a criminal act towards the spouse in order to grant a divorce. That all changed. 1960s, the sexual revolution. We came to this place to where most states adopted some form of no-fault divorce. And the reason this is important is all that happened through that is more divorce. People began to say, well, because it's legal and because it's easy and because no one will be at fault, people stopped resisting the temptation to divorce. The promiscuity that came from the 1960s and 70s combined with the changing moral climate here in our country we, we now have a situation where as many as 1.2 to 1.5 million divorces are finalized each year in the United States of America. That is a tragedy of monumental proportions. And here's why. Because in those divorces, 2.5 million innocent children are put through that hell. million innocent children. The average couple that marries now has less than a 50% chance to remain married after nine years. So couples like myself and Connie that have been married for nearly 42 years are very rare. That also is a tragedy. Because there's something I can tell you. I am not perfect. I am not the perfect husband, and it isn't because I'm just super husband. It's not because we've read a whole bunch of books and we know how to do everything absolutely perfectly. It's because we love the Lord and we love each other. And you can get through anything that way. There is nothing God can't do in your marriage to restore and to heal Almost 60% of our children born today will live at some point in time in a single-parent home. What does that do? It causes us to try and justify what actually happens to children. Children in divorce always, almost 100% of the time, underachieve those who live in stable homes. Almost, did you hear what I said? 100% of the time. It's near 100% of the time 
that children from divorced homes underachieve those who live in stable two-parent homes. Three in five children in those situations feel rejected by not one, but both parents. Both. And again, these are not Christian statistics. These are the things that we know about marriage from non-Christian sources, and they are the highest scientific sources that we have available to us. Children in divorce are plagued by all kinds of problems. They're in the high 60 percentiles, normally in the 70 to 80 percentile of these things. Rebellion, depression, discipline problems, grief, guilt, fear, inability to concentrate, and trust. So when we say there's really no thing that's going to happen that's bad, it's going to be better, my question becomes, better for who? Better for what? Better for why? A third change is the rise in out-of-wedlock births. Children born in single-parent homes. 52% of all households in the United States of America right now are a male and a female who cohabitate together. They are not married. Now remember what I've already said. Because the same statistics apply to those homes where there's a couple there, but they're not married, and here's why. Because there is not the commitment of marriage in those cohabitating relationships. They are by definition seen to be temporary by both parties. That's why they won't get married, generally speaking. It's not true in all cases, but in most cases it's true. 36% of all births in the United States of America are to unwed women. That's 1.5 million children born annually to a single mom. That's not a good thing. Since 1970, the increase in people living together has risen by 1,000%. Consequently, you know what happened in 1970s? No fault divorce. Seventy percent of all teens now agree, at least in some way, that living together before marriage is not only acceptable but necessary. And the reasoning for that is my mom and dad are not married. A fourth change, and this is a crisis of monumental proportion, especially in urban America, and that's the crisis of fatherlessness in homes. Men, wives, men matter in homes. The statistics are overwhelming. Tonight, as we sit here, 34% of our nation's children and teens will go to bed without a father in the home. Some estimate rises as high as 60% of all families will at least have been at some point in time fatherless. Now let me give you some of the fruit of that. 60% of all rapists in America grew up in a fatherless home. 72% of adolescent murderers grew up in a fatherless home. 70% of long-term incarcerated inmates grew up in a fatherless home. Do you think marriage is important? The statistics seem to say that marriage is fundamentally important to our children that it matters to them. And yet divorce almost is always about the mother and the father. 
and yet it's the children that pay often the highest price. I, like many of you, am one of those children. My parents divorced. I remember it today as if it happened yesterday, many of the things that occurred. I can tell you details about our home. I can tell you details about the rooms that my mother and father fought in. And I can tell you that for a guy who was a fairly high achiever in school, for the first time in my educational history, I nearly flunked out of a grade because of that divorce. So we have to consider some of these things if we're going to think about why God says what he says about divorce. A fifth thing, and I'll wrap this up because I know it's tough to hear, and that's the decreasing amount of time that parents spend with their children, and that only gets worse with divorce. It does not get better when the children are being kicked back and forth between two homes. It becomes worse. When asked about the wishes for a better life, 27% of high school students said they wanted more money. 14% named some type of an item, usually electronic, such as a television, computer, iPad, or a cell phone. An overwhelming majority of all of those high school students ask for one thing, more time with their parents. Kids left outside of the home alone receive 80% of all violence on children. Do you think God wants married families? That is why Scripture says what it says. If you turn to the book of Malachi, you can go to Matthew, go one chapter back into the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament. And remember that God's moral commands... While the law itself is not kept by believers, God's moral commands have not and will not ever change. What was sin in the Old Testament, still sin in the New. What God designs for us in the Old, he still finds as the the law of the land, so to speak, in the New. And so what does God say in the Old Testament, the last book, before a period of 400 years of silence? Chapter 2, verse 16 of the book of Malachi, in light of what I just told you, which is now divorce will occur in about 50% of all marriages, and it is hyper-destructive to the children and to the parents. So look what God says about divorce. For the Lord God of Israel, or the Lord God of hosts, The one Lord God, the only God, the true and the living God, Yahweh, Lord of hosts, Yahweh Adonai, El Gabor, the hero God, El Shaddai, the mighty God. Yahweh Sidkenu, our God who is righteousness, the Lord God of Israel. All of those names the children of Israel knew. The Lord God of Israel says... That he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence. Can I say to you that the statistics that we see in our world bear out 100% that God's word is absolutely accurate? 100%. Recovers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, and therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. If you've ever had the displeasure of being in divorce court, 
perhaps one of the most treacherous places on the planet Earth. I have sat in in depositions with people. I have sat in divorce court. I've been called in as an expert witness. Uh, I've had about every experience you can think about. And it is not good, ever. Never. And so, our passage for tonight. Verse 10, 1 Corinthians 7 And now, you can see why it says, and now, to the married I command, not I, but the Lord, to the married I command, not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. Speaking to Christian couples, of course. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried. Or, here it is, go on lots of dates until you find a new husband. Find someone with whom you are more sexually compatible. See if you can't get the old guy to run away. I'm trying to be a little bit humorous here because I know this is a serious subject. But it doesn't say any of those things, does it? Or be reconciled to her husband. There are no other options. There isn't one in Scripture. God hates divorce. He's always hated divorce. He still hates divorce. He doesn't want you to get a divorce, no matter what's happened. It is actually sans information. There's nothing there. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. You can put a period, dot, dot, dot on there if you'd like. Because you'll notice it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not like Paul saying, well, you know, I was kind of thinking about what the Lord wants. And it's like, you know, if you really got somebody you just absolutely disdain and you got some irreconcilable differences, well, you know, who's to say... Basically, he's saying, I agree with God. And so that that from God's perspective, he does not leave the door open for all of the things that the world says are reasons for you to leave your spouse. He slams the door completely shut. And he leaves open one path, reconciliation and restoration. And while I want to be very clear, that is not always possible from a human perspective. It is always God's design. God hates divorce, so he never ordains that which he hates. And here's the proof of it. If you'd flip back over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. Jesus is being quizzed. The word divorce is only used 16 times in the entire Bible. 100% of them, it is painfully negative. It is never spoken about in wonderful tones. It is not given a nod of approval ever. It is always negative. Why am I saying that? Because here's Jesus, he's being quizzed, and in verse 7 of Matthew 19, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? So Jesus now busts them, and he said to them, to the Pharisees, to those inquisitors, if you will, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. Do you see the difference? In other words, there was never a command to divorce. Moses allowed it. Moses permitted it under the exemption, under the exception that you had a rotten, lousy, wicked heart. It wasn't like Moses was even going, well, you know, I'd get rid of her too. (laughs) Man, if I was married to that gal, whoo, out of here. No, this isn't what it says. 
And by the way, these are the words of Jesus. Notice what follows. But from the beginning, it was not so. You know what beginning that is? In the beginning. The beginning. Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. The very beginning. That's the reference. That God from the beginning never saw divorce as something for his kids. And so he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, there is an exception, and it's only an exception based only on the hardness of one's heart, and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced also commits adultery. God is really serious on this subject, family. You see, God isn't surprised by the statistics that I gave you at the beginning of tonight's study. Didn't catch him off guard. (laughs) Man, I never saw that coming. God isn't sitting there going, wow, you know, that's, that's worse than I thought it would be. No, God knows exactly what divorce does, and that's why he hates it. And that's why always and only he permits it, and that's why always and only he never, ever, ever ordains it. It is simply an allowance. And we're going to see that it's an allowance in exactly two cases. And only two. We need to have God's view of divorce. We need to not have the world's view of divorce. Because what God wants is restoration. And here's why. Because that is what glorifies him. Because then the world knows, I can fix anything. I can take any brokenness. I can take a marriage where there's been adultery. I can take a marriage where there's drunkenness. I can take a marriage where there's drug abuse. I can take a marriage where there's thievery. I can take a marriage where there has been sin on sin on sin on sin and destructive thing on destructive thing, and I can fix it. And here's what happens. When he fixes that marriage, it becomes a beacon for other broken people. And they take a look at that, and if God could do that, that I know he can fix us. But we cannot take the world's view of marriage and the world's view of divorce and think that we're going to have the blessed hand of God on us. Because we won't. We'll get exactly what those statistics bear out. You're going to get children that are messed up. You're going to take all the problems you had in your first marriage right into the second one. They may look different. They may smell different. But those problems are internal. They're not external. It has nothing to do with all the stuff that we blame it on. It has everything to do with exactly what Jesus and Moses said. It is the hardness of people's hearts who fail to do what the Scriptures say we should do as believers. And while for sake of time we cannot cover it tonight, I want you to just write down Matthew chapter 18. And I'll look at a couple of pieces of it tonight. But I want you to read it in its entirety because the whole chapter is this picture of forgiveness. And in it is my favorite character, Peter, in his absolutely unfathomable wisdom. Lord, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Well, of course, the number of completion, seven. And Jesus says to him, illustrating the principle that was A few verses earlier, if your brother sins against you, go to that brother and between you and him alone, 
try to win your brother. And if he doesn't hear, take a neutral observer and speak to him so that the facts can be established. And if you have to, take it to the church. But the illustration is at the end. And at the end of that chapter, after he tells the parable of this servant who owes a debt that he cannot pay, that is forgiven the whole debt, at the end it says, after Peter is told, no, Peter, I tell you, forgive them a myriad of times. Seventy times seven, an infinite number. As many as it takes, Peter, you forgive that many times. Have any of you ever reached an infinite number of times in forgiveness on anything? I know I have not. There's always one more time. If you do not forgive, then neither will my Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses but will rather turn you over to be tortured. And it's not saying you're going to hell. It says you will be tortured with unforgiveness and bitterness. It will eat at the very sustenance of your soul. It will divide you in your heart. That unforgiveness will stay latent underneath the surface of your relationship, and you will be tortured. You see, God knows these things. And so he says, I, the Lord God of Israel, the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of heaven and earth, the maker of every man, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, I, the Lord God, say, I hate divorce because it covers one's garment, signifying the totality of you, with violence. Are you starting to get the picture? God's serious about this subject because it's so destructive. And you say, well, what if I'm married to an unbeliever? I mean, God wouldn't expect me to stay married to an unbeliever. I mean, after all, they're heathens. Now, this is a legitimate question that's being asked by the church at Corinth. And why is it legitimate? Because many of them have now given their lives to the Lord and they're being persecuted for it. Verse 12, but now to the rest I say, not, not I, the rest, I, not the Lord say, if a brother has a wife who does not believe and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. A woman who has a husband who does not believe, he's willing to live with her, let him not divorce You see, God even understands this. There's no direct command because you can't control as a believer someone else's belief. And so you may find yourself in a situation completely out of your control. But from your side as a believer, you're to stay married. Even when adultery has happened even if that spouse is trying their hardest to get out of the marriage, as a Christian, you are the best hope they have to see the Lord Jesus. If anyone can show them the love of Christ, it's you. You're their best hope. And so God says, stay. He doesn't command, but he says, look, if it it lies with you, Exactly as scripture says, as best as it lies with you, live at peace with all men. So from our side as believers, we're to go the extra mile. Read Matthew chapter 5. Look at the Beatitudes. Anybody in here want mercy? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Amen? Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall obtain peace. You see, we think we can have the things of God by doing things the world's way, and we can't. If we want what God wants for us, we need to see these things from his perspective. That's why God hates divorce. And yes, I'm going to keep repeating it. Because too much of the church believes that somehow, as long as it's a Christian that contemplates divorce, that it's somehow holy divorce. 
God hates divorce. 100% of them. He may allow them. There may be a reason for it. And he is going to release those who are wronged against on two occasions to feel free to move on and do what God's called you to do. That is true. But he still hates that divorce. Because those vows you took as a believer were made to him. They were made to him. And he doesn't just go, well, I know you didn't mean it. You know, I saw that one coming. Is he sovereign? Yes. Does he know the beginning from the end? Yes. But he loves us so much, he doesn't want us to engage in things that are going to harm us. I was talking with my dad. I don't believe he would mind me sharing because he's now received the Lord Jesus Christ and he's walking with the Lord. But I had to talk with my dad. And I'll spare you the details, but let's just say things were not good in the Gill household when my parents divorced. There was violence and anger and abuse. There was everything that you can possibly imagine. Adultery. Uh, it, inexplicable things, especially to an 11 year old. My dad has told me to my face, in spite of all that, my divorcing your mother was the worst mistake of my entire life. Wow. And my dad had every reason to leave my mom. My dad came home and found her in bed with another man because I called him. My dad nearly beat that man to death because I called him. And in the face of that, my own father says, that's the worst mistake I ever made in my entire life. And he didn't know the Lord. Why? Because of all the stuff that went on for decades afterwards. One of those things not being that he didn't talk to his son for over 10 years. because of that divorce. If you're here tonight and you're contemplating divorce, let me tell you, God can heal your marriage. God can, I don't care how broken it is. You could come to me and you could tell me, I have sat with people where one murdered the other's family and God restored their marriage. I have sat with drug abusers, so much sexual sin that we could not put it into a movie because it would be, it couldn't be shown in the world anywhere. Drug abuse like you can't imagine, bank robberies, homes being given to other people, other lives and other wives. I've heard a lot of stuff. But I've watched God fix those marriages. I've watched him reach into the hardest hearts. I have anything you can imagine. How about if you're the dad and in an angry fit, you back over one of your own children and kill them? You think that'd be a little tough on the wife? A couple is still married. And they still have the other two beautiful children. God can do it. But you've got to give him a chance. God hates divorce. The question always comes up. Can a divorced person remarried get remarried? 
I get asked this question constantly. I would love to give you a simple answer tonight, but I can't because there isn't one. Scripture has some things to say about this subject, but it very much depends on the conditions. First and foremost, we're both people Christians. If both people were Christians and you have two things that really are very problematic. Number one, was there sexual sin or was there something that occurred in their life or one party was wronged? That's the case that Jesus spoke about of allowance. Not ordained, but allows. Not much problem there. And there's the issue of a couple that's unequally yoked. One's a believer and not a believer. And the unbelieving spouse leaves. Paul has already said, in that case, that person is free to live in peace. The unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the wife. The unbelieving wife sanctified by the husband. Stay if you can possibly stay. Verse 14 says. But now let me address some things that scripture doesn't say. Well, we had irreconcilable differences. It's not found in scripture. I was verbally abused, not found in scripture. My spouse didn't meet my sexual needs, not found in scripture. My spouse doesn't make enough money. Not found in scripture. Tired of living in this neighborhood. Not found in scripture. My spouse is a bit overweight. Got a little porky on our our married. We had too many Twinkies. (laughs) Not found in scripture. My spouse can't cook. Not found in Scripture. Our house is a little dirty. Not found in Scripture. Now, while you were giggling, I was giggling with you. But can I tell you something? I've talked to people that have been divorced for every one of those reasons. Every one of them. They're not found in Scripture. They're not okay with God. They're not an allowance. You have no biblical grounds to divorce your spouse for any of those reasons. None. So if you do, Scripture says you're not supposed to remarry. I know that's tough. But if you're a believer, you're going to take all that stuff into your next relationship. And so God says to you, I don't want somebody else's life messed up. So if that's how you see marriage, you need to probably stay single. Now having said that, there's also grace for those things. But make no mistake, God's word doesn't say just because you don't like who you're living with, you can go get a new spouse. God is serious on this stuff because It covers one's garment with violence. He's saying, look, it's it's so serious that I don't want you to do it. So all these unbiblical reasons are not okay with God. That's why God wants us to keep holiness in view as believers, as Christians. Unbelievers, God's grace is all over those those marriages where neither of the the people that are engaged in marriage know the Lord. Grace has not been evident to them yet. But to we who know the Lord, we need to be serious about our marriages. We need to fight for our marriages. We need to not relent in our understanding 
of what God thinks about the sanctity of marriage. We have to keep holiness in view. We need to be pleasing to God. So he says, look, your, your marriage, because of one believer there, is sanctified because there's an evidence of God's work, at least in that home, through the one believer. Maybe there's problems. Maybe there's issues. And to this end, what God says is really there's only two biblical reasons that divorce is even permitted, never ordained, but would be permitted from God's perspective. And that is adultery and abandonment by someone who does not know the Lord. That is it. That's all there is in the whole Bible. So God's serious about our commitments in marriage. Now does it make sense to you? Paul said, it's better that you be as I am, unmarried. He wasn't saying marriage is bad. He's saying marriage is serious. Marriage is serious business. It's also a blessed state. I can't imagine. I cannot even imagine going through life without my bride. We sometimes, because we're getting to that age, and we kind of look at each other, and we, we joke, you know, we're like the, get us the rocking chairs in the front porch, we're ready. It's like, we'll just go together, we'll like try and not rock each other or something. It's like, I, I can't imagine living without her. She is my completion. It's gotten so bad, I don't sleep when I travel, it's like, where, you know, I'm like, where is she at? It's not here. I'm in Mongolia. She's not here. So we're supposed to keep our marriages before the throne of grace. And we who are are blessed to be uh, married to another believer, we have a special blessing on us. A special blessing. It's not like the people here. It says if an unbeliever departs, let him depart. Because a brother and sister is not under bondage in those cases, but has been called to peace. You see, you may not be able to do anything about that unbelieving person who just leaves. Because they are not a believer. And you can't speak spiritual things and have it stick. Carnal mind can't know the things of God. And so what ultimately happens is, well, that's, you know, you're religious, so go for it. And I've sat with couples where one is a believer and one's not a believer. And here's what, well, I'm glad you found religion. That's good for you, but it's not okay with me. And I've watched people walk away from their marriages because someone's saved. And that is exactly what Jesus said might happen. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you for my name's sake. It's the end of the Beatitudes. It may happen. And you are free. God willed and, and looks at that as like, that's not on you. But everything else, if there's a smidgen of hope, cling to that hope. For how do you know, verse 16 says, O wife, whether you'll save your husband, or how do you know, a husband, whether you'll save your wife? The answer is you don't. You don't know. But you're supposed to try. So if you're here tonight and you are a believer, it is incumbent upon us to go as far as we possibly can towards restoration and reconciliation. And that means a lot further than most of us really want to go. That means forgiving the unforgivable. Because in God's mind, there is no unforgivable. God doesn't look at it, and that's why he said to Peter what he said to him. That's what Jesus said. Should I forgive him seven times? No, not exactly. Forgive him as often as it takes until there's no more forgiving to do. Can I tell you, there's not many problems you'll ever face in your entire life that if you're willing to forgive endlessly, that that situation won't eventually be taken care of by the forgiveness. 
But if you're like Peter after the seventh time, your marriage is, is pretty much doomed from the start. Because the longer you're married, the more opportunities there are for those things to come back. Like, well, this is time eight, sorry. I just, I just can't deal with this anymore. I had a guy come to me, and, he, and to protect him, I'll, I'll alter the story a little bit. But it went something like this. This is the third car in four months. I'm done. His poor wife was B-L-I-N-D, blind. I mean, just obviously couldn't see moving vehicles. He was like, I'm not buying any more cars. And I looked him right in the eye and I said, you are going to divorce your wife over an automobile. And he just looked at me like stunned, like, well, of course. And I said, so you're telling me that the sanctity of your marriage before the Lord, your marriage is worth uh, sonata. Is that what you're telling me? Well, no, not exactly. I said, well, yes, it is. It's exactly what you're saying. Now, I want you to blow that out. Blow it out to a house. Blow it out to your bank account. Blow it out to your retirement. Blow it out to whatever you want to blow it out to. You you see, if you go there, you are establishing the value of your spouse based on an earthly thing. That is why God says, I hate divorce. Because Christ died for your spouse. Us husbands... We're supposed to, in like kind, die for our spouses. So there shouldn't be anything on this earth that is of such great value that we would trade our spouse for it. Do you see how that works in principle? And some of you are going, man, I wish I'd never come tonight. (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking. I saw the title. I should have stayed home. That's all the more reason why you're here. Because that's the value God puts on your marriage. God couldn't care less. The sheep and the cattle on a thousand hills of gold and silver and every mine are his. He already owns it all. He doesn't need the stuff. But he does love you. And he loves your spouse. And he loves your kids. And he doesn't want anything bad to happen to you. And so he says, don't do it. And people will ask, you know, well, how do, I, how do I protect my marriage? And I want to give you a few things as we close. Because there are some things that we do habitually that are dangerous. And I want to warn you. I just want to warn you tonight. If you're here and you're married... Would you please stop spending time alone with people of the opposite sex? Don't do it. Don't do it. You don't have any business going to lunch, going to dinner. And I know it sounds old-fashioned, and I'm going to get emails. I don't care. I don't care. Don't do it. Don't go to coffee. Don't say, hey, you know, you want to go for a walk with me? I'll take you for a walk off the Redondo Pier. (laughs) How's the walking down there? Don't do it. Don't share your deepest feelings with someone of the opposite sex you're not married to. That's what married people do. And when you do that with people you're not married to, you cause them to believe that you do not want to be married to whom you are already married, but you might want to be married to them. Don't do it. Don't do it. I don't have to tell you the extreme parts of this. Stay out of bars. 
Outside influences, carnal environments. I shouldn't even have to say that. You go, I can't believe it happened. Well, tell me what went down. Well, I was drunk. (laughs) Didn't the light bulb go on? Carnal, outside influences will not draw you to Jesus. They will draw you away from Jesus. And the quickest way to get you away from Jesus is some pretty young thing, male or female. Don't do it. Make your spouse your top priority. Men, are you thinking about your wives? Wives, are you thinking about your husbands? Are you thinking about anything and everything but? Because I'll tell you what happens as you get older. There is one thing that's going to occupy your mind, and I know there are people in here that will bear witness to this. That's my bride. I think about her constantly. I'm sitting there studying. I wonder what she's doing. I wonder how she... Start to text her. She gets she's like, I... so how are you doing, honey? Don't bother me. I'm studying right now. You know, know, no, it's like put priority one to be your marriage. If it's number 10, you're going to be in trouble. If it's at the bottom of your to-do list, you're going to be in trouble. That will lead you to the fifth thing. Change your attitude, change your actions about your marriage. Because if you treat your marriage like dirt... It's going to look like dirt. If you put no time into your marriage, then your marriage is not going to be very timely. It's not going to be the here and now. It's going to be the yesterday's news. You've got to change your attitude. You have to change your action towards your bride, towards your husband. You have to resign in your own heart that this is something that I am going to pour myself into. Not I can't wait to get out of it. Sixth, if you've messed up, repent. Repent in an English term means to turn around and go the opposite direction. We use the term do a 180. That is effectively what it means. It means to have formerly held one view and you now hold the polar opposite view. You were over here, now you're over there. Repent. Repent. We we talk about the word repent like it's some swear word. Well, he told me to repent. Yes, I did. It means to hold the other view. To stop doing what you were doing and do the other thing. Why? Because you can't ask for forgiveness until you repent. Repent. You cannot keep doing the same thing you were doing the day before and expect anybody to believe that there's going to be a change in your behavior or your action. Period. Nobody believes it. If I tell you I love you and I smack you in the mouth, you're not going to believe I love you, amen? So I have to repent of my wanting to smack you in the mouth and I have to love you, which means I'm going to do good to you. You see, sometimes we say, well, I'm just going to beat you up with my lips. I'm going to trash you with my talk. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm playing softball. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to hang out with the guys. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. Oh, and I love you. Really? You've got to repent of that stuff. Ask for help. Find an older married couple that's been through it and let them share the war stories with you. Yep. Been there, done that, bought the T-shirt, the hat, got a pin too. Amen. We have been married. You know, we didn't get like this overnight. Find some help. Change anything in your life that's endangering your marriage. Anything. If it's endangering your marriage, it's not worth it. If it's a behavior, stop it. If it's a thing, get rid of it. You may need to change your job. You may need to move into a different circumstance or situation. If you can't get it under control, 
If you can't get it under control, then you need to get it out of your life. Amen? Because if you don't, it will get you. I know that sounds extreme, but it's true. And then finally, ask God for the miracle you need. Ask him. You see, here's what happens. We make up our mind that we want out of our marriage, so we stop asking God for miracles. And we start complaining to God about our spouse. And instead of God change me, we're saying God change him. God change her. The miracle is you need to have your heart changed. Maybe you need to be more forgiving. Maybe you need to put aside the bitterness. Maybe the anger that's overwhelmed your marriage is on you. Pray for the miracle. Because our God's still a God of miracles. He can heal anything. There's, not, there's nothing in this room that someone could tell me that would shock me. Nothing. There isn't. I've listened to homosexual men who had a double life. I've listened to sexual brokenness that it's mind-boggling. I've listened to financial things. It's like, oh no, they didn't do that, did they? Uh-huh. I, I talked to a couple who's one of the two of them sold the house that they were living in to someone else without their signature and they came home and the new people were moving in from a vacation. I'm thinking that's a little hard to deal with. They're still married. They actually got the house back. God can heal it. Pray for a miracle. Don't give in to those extremes, the love-hate feelings. Don't demand a divorce. Please. Please. The, The pain that those words even cause. I want a divorce. That in and of itself is a tough cliff to come back from. Don't say them. Don't insist on all the details. Just know that you're dealing with a failed human being in your spouse. Can I just tell you a secret? We sin. There's not a perfect marriage in this room, ours included. Don't expect perfection out of somebody else because you can't do it yourself. It's an impossibility. As long as you're in the mortal body that you're in right now, body of flesh, you will not be perfect. You'll have your issues, your spouse will have theirs. Be kind, be affectionate, be forgiving, be merciful, be gentle, be of a quiet spirit. Talk less and pray more. Because our God still does miracles. Would you stand and we'll pray together? I'm going to invite the pastors to come forward and be available for prayer. Maybe you've got something going on in your marriage and you're here tonight. Oh, brother and sister, let me tell you, he is able. He is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond everything, all things that you can ask or think including fixing any brokenness that you may have brought with you tonight. If you'll give it to him. Father, thank you that that is truth. That nothing, your word plainly declares, Lord, that nothing is impossible for you. And we bless your name. Because there's some stuff that seems impossible in this room. 
Lord, there's husbands that have committed adultery. There's wives that have committed adultery. There's people that have lied and cheated and stolen. There's people that are on drugs. They're drunkards at night, and they try and hold down a job during the day, and there's marriages that are worn out because of it, Lord. And we're crying out to you to heal these marriages, God. And Lord, we pray against the example that our world sets of the holiness of marriage, Lord, the sanctity of marriage. And God, we invite you to change us. Let a a wave of revival in marriage sweep across this nation. Begin it here in the South Bay, Lord. Because those kids are suffering. They are going to bed without a dad. Lord, those assets are being divided, and it's the reason that their kids can't afford homes. The families are being torn apart, and their assets are being scattered all over the world. Lord, don't let the enemy lie to us any longer. Now, Lord, corporately, we just simply repent of those things in our hearts and our minds that we've been hanging on to. That garbage, that junk, it's not worth anything, and we tell you it's not worth it. And so we ask you, God, to free us from the bondage of self and selfishness. Lord, we love you. We want to honor you with our marriages. And so we're asking you, we're inviting you to step from eternity into time in these areas of our life where we are broken and do whatever is necessary to heal us. We ask you to save our children. Lord, we ask you to undo the unfruitful works of darkness that we've allowed. God, we beg you. We beg you, Lord to make us whole. We ask all this in the mighty name of our God who still is Jehovah Rapha, our God who heals. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.